Welcome to episode 124 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm Gary Ferencik, a general internist and professor of medicine at Michigan State University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. We are recording today on the Ides of March, which has all kinds of interesting connotations, but there's lots going on on the calendar. Yesterday, for example, was Pie Day, and I went to our local uh, grocery store, Meyer to buy some pies for students, and they were $3.14, so I bought a whole bunch of pies. Uh, and you know, speaking of food, uh, next week is the start of Ramadan. And for those of you who care for patients with diabetes who choose to fast, I've posted at the end of our uh, script here today a guideline on the approach to managing patients with type with, with diabetes uh, who choose to fast. And it includes a lot of interesting tools, including risk stratification, as well as some interesting um, uh, nuances around Sharia law. Henry, I know, that's great <clears throat> information. I, I never know what you're going to say. So it's always, we're, we're always as surprised as the listeners. At what Ed worried. <laughs> great stuff. No, no, that was great. So on this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus. You get a poem in your email plus a great primary care-oriented reference, over 800 chapters, <clears throat> thousands of interactive decision support tools, EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on primary care data are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can also get CME credit, IAFP.com. Go to their online IAFP education webpage and find our podcast. This week, immediate insertion of etonogestrel contraception and lactogenesis, an ACG guideline on managing patients with celiac disease, FODMAPs diet for irritable bowel, and a new way to lower cholesterol and reduce cardiovascular events. Kate, please get us started. I sure will. I today have a trial that is interesting for several reasons. First, it's looking at early initiation of contraception following delivery and breastfeeding outcomes related to progesterone secreting hormonal contraception, which is interesting in its own right. And second, it's a non-inferiority trial, and those are fun to talk about. So these authors sought to compare time to lactogenesis stage two, which is the perception of copious milk production or when parents would perceive the milk comes in, uh, among patients who received an etonogestrel implant within two hours postpartum or 24 to 48 hours postpartum. Either option is substantially faster than what we typically see, which is waiting until the postpartum visit at like six weeks postpartum, a long time. So the authors included patients, this was a small trial, uh, they, but they included patients who intended to breastfeed and uh, desired the etonogestrel implant for contraception. Groups were similar in age, at, they were similar at, in gestational age of delivery and in previous breastfeeding experience. They chose a 12-hour difference as their non-inferiority margin, and as I'm sure you all know, that non-inferiority margin is always something that you have to scrutinize carefully when you're reading a, a non-inferiority trial. So... I'm of two minds about the 12-hour difference. On one hand, that's like a sixth of a three-day-old baby's lifetime, so not an, a, a small difference necessarily. 
On the other hand, the authors make the case that 12 hours delay in lactogenesis is actually comparable to other what you get with other common labor and delivery practices. So epidural anesthesia and cesarean delivery can both produce a similar delay in lactogenesis. Stage two. There's also a substantial variance in the average time to lactogenesis. So although the average time is about 72 hours, so we typically say, you know, your milk will come in in three days. Uh, the standard deviation is 19 hours, which is an eternity when you have a wailing, starving baby who's just like, I would like some milk, please. Uh, all, anyways, they ultimately found uh, no difference. So it made no difference when they put the implant in. Time to stage two lactogenesis was 65 hours with a 25-hour standard deviation in the delivery room group and 73 hours uh, with a 61-hour standard deviation in the delayed group. Uh, two people in the delayed group experienced what they call lactation failure, meaning they had no lactogenesis by 172 hours standard definition of life. Uh, by day three postpartum, so this is Henry's favorite result, uh, the, uh, there were 20, 74% of people in the early group and 71% of people in the delayed group who had achieved the outcome. So that's your binary. Did they do it or not? How many responded, so to speak? Um, so again, no significant difference. Your nerd alert for the day, uh, they performed an as-treated or per-protocol analysis, which is uh, the most conservative approach when you're, when you're assessing a non-inferiority trial. So in a non-inferiority trial, the null hypothesis is not that the groups are the same, but that they are different, and one of them is inferior because it's a non-inferiority trial. So instead of doing an intention-to-treat analysis as the more conservative estimate, as we would do with a superiority trial, where the null hypothesis is that there's no difference, it's the per protocol that's the more conservative method of analysis. So when we reject the null in a non-inferiority trial, we reject no difference and conclude that there's a lack of inferiority. I feel like Henry's going to have something to say about this. I'm going to have to re-read. I'm going to have to re-listen. Yeah, to that. My head is spinning, and, you know, like, whoa. No hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just nerd alert, that's not going to be your last nerd alert. Of the day, sure. <laughs> oh, it's going to come in hot and heavy at the end here. Yeah, okay, uh, Henry, so, I, think, I think you're up, Henry. Yeah, so... Uh, I'm just going to paraphrase Robert Duvall. I love the sound of nerd talk in the morning. <laughs> so this issue of uh, postpartum contraception is, uh, it's really an important uh, consideration. And, you know, in the old days, when we were thinking about when to start oral contraceptives, uh, especially combined oral contraceptives. We had the issues on the progestin side, largely around lactogenesis, on the estrogen side, concerns around venous thromboembolic phenomena, and on either of them, what are the effects on the infant? And so by using an implant that's largely progestin effect, we kind of eliminate the concerns around the venous thromboembolic phenomena. This tells us that maybe we don't need to worry about the lactogenesis. So the real story that's, that's out there then is what about the effects on, on the infants? And I think that story uh, remains to be told. Gary, any comments on this one? Yeah, Mark, my big question is, why did you put me second on this one? <laughs> this is such a common problem that general interns face. <laughs> yeah, you see this all the time, I know. All the time. Yeah. No, yeah, great, I have no comments. Great <laughs> study, uh, Kate. I, that, that's really, you know, uh, I think a practice changer. It's, it's good stuff. Uh, I do have the quiz, um, and the question is, which of the following is true regarding antibiotic therapy? Oral antibiotics are as good as IV for bone and joint infections. IV antibiotics are better than oral 
for endocarditis. Patients with community-acquired pneumonia should be treated for seven to 10 days. D, none of the above are true. Stay tuned. Henry, tell us about celiac disease and how we should be managing it. So the American College of Gastroenterology issued a guideline in January, and uh, they they assembled a panel of uh, what they called content experts. In my mind, these were partialists. They did have a methodologist on the team to help with searching the literature and helping with the evaluation of the quality of the underlying research. But they didn't mention whether they had any patient involvement or primary care involvement. Having said that, they identified eight really broad questions on the approach to evaluating and managing both children and adults with suspected celiac disease. They did a whole bunch of these systematic reviews and then synthesized them into a set of recommendations. As you might imagine, because this was a team of partialists, they really focused an awful lot on the things that gastroenterologists do. But there are a couple of things that I thought were incredibly valuable to primary care clinicians. So first of all, there's a lot of tools that are in uh, the uh, the guideline, and it's probably worth taking a look at, including a, an algorithm that's probably overly complicated, but it takes into account all kinds of permutations. So the first thing that they recommend, they, they made a very strong recommendation that every person with suspected celiac disease undergo um, esophagogastroduodenoscopy, uh, EGD, with multiple biopsies shouldn't be surprised because these are the barbers that you just asked, do I need a haircut, right? Um, however, they did say that, you know, we, we probably have some patients who are not really interested or willing to undergo uh, uh, EGDs with multiple biopsies. And in, in some settings, they the access may be problematic. So they said that, you know what, if you've got high titers of tissue transglutaminase uh, and a positive endomycelial antibody, that's probably good enough, okay? Okay, so that's to me is what we can do in our offices. We can do those tests. They recommend against mass screening and recommend that we just do targeted uh, testing based on an appropriate set of histories. Um, they also say that you know the the hallmark of therapy is a gluten free diet, but cross contamination of gluten containing grains is is a real challenge. So they actually provided some data and, ma and made a strong recommendation that you should be using gluten free oats to increase the likelihood of achieving a uh, clinical remission. Um, so they don't actually recommend anything around using these gluten detection devices that are out there. And then they couldn't really make a recommendation because of the uh, lack of quality research around the use of probiotics. So bottom line, there's a lot that's in here, but you know, testing, frankly, is really from our perspective could be very simplified by using the uh, uh, tissue uh, transglutaminase and endomycelial antibody testing and a trial of appropriate therapy using a gluten-free diet. To me, in primary care, those that fail that, or the ones that don't seem to have in-between kind of test results, those are the ones that we might want to then refer on for further evaluation. Yeah, I, I fully yeah, I fully agree with you, Henry. I mean, I think those, those tests are highly accurate. They have really, really good sensitivity and specificity, <clears throat> better than most of the tests we routinely use in practice. And so I, I think it's pretty reliable, particularly in a patient with typical symptoms, positive tests, 
And if they certainly if they respond to a gluten free diet, I, you know, there's I don't see any reason to go for EGD unless you have some sort of alarm symptoms or, or red flags or, or uncertainty uh, at the end of that. So, yeah, great stuff. Kate? I have a question. So you mentioned uh, they made a recommendation to use gluten-free oats. Is that like here, use gluten-free oats, or is that if you choose to eat oats, make sure they're gluten-free? I think it's the latter because there are certainly other uh, gluten-free, like barley and um, buckwheat and things of that nature where they didn't raise that as a specific. So it seems to be a unique issue uh, around oats. Got it. All right. Great stuff. Gary, you got a comment? I just just a quick comment. Um, I've, I've kind of been following some of the celiac stuff over the years, and um, everything that Henry says, uh, I agree with. The one small caveat for the listeners is is that both of the antibodies are IgA based antibodies, and so there's also a recommendation to order a serum IgA level because you can have false negatives. Because I, I think three percent of people, I think I heard somewhere, are maybe have a have a lower than normal IgA level, in which case you can get a quote unquote false negative. Yeah, great point. I think that was buried in the in other guidelines that I've read as well, that you need to check that level. Good good point. Thanks, Gary. Um, okay, next is in patients with irritable bowel, can an app help you adhere to a FODMAPS diet? And is that going to be better than medication for uh, irritable bowel syndrome? So this was uh, previous research, and we covered a systematic review back in October, showed that a low FODMAPS diet appears to be effective but mostly those were compared to other diets or to usual care. This is a randomized trial comparing a FODMAPS diet, and FODMAPS stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, which is why they came up with the acronym FODMAPS. And a low FODMAPS diet compared it to otolinium bromide, which is an, anti, an oral antispasmodic agent. So this was what they call a pragmatic trial, so it was unblinded. They enrolled primary care patients who were diagnosed with IBS by their physician. The dietary intervention was an app that gave them guidance on you know, how to adhere to this low FODMAPS diet and provided over 100 recipes. The otolinium bromide was 40 milligrams three times a day. The groups looked alike at baseline. Average age was about 40 years. Three quarters were women. And, the, uh, and also by type of uh, IBS, they were similar. Uh, the primary outcome was a clinically significant improvement of 50 points on a 500-point. I've never seen a scale with 500 points. 500-point <laughs> IBS severity symptom scale, a uh, lot of points. But 10% on a 500-point scale is a reasonable clinical significance you know, cutoff. After eight weeks, they found a response of, in more patients in the FODMAPS group compared to the medication group. At four weeks, it was 62% versus 51%. Uh, also, at eight weeks, it was 71% versus 61%. So the NNT is about 10. The average decline on the score was also greater in the FODMAPS group. It was about 100 points compared to 77 with the medication. So both exceeded that clinical significance cutoff. Uh, there weren't any differences between groups in quality of life scales. They did a pre-specified subgroup analysis. About 70% of those patients who were physician diagnosed with IBS also met the official Rome 4 criteria for IBS. The benefit was even greater in those patients in terms of responders, 77 versus 62%, an NNT of only seven. <clears throat> Adherence was really good. It was actually better for the diet at 94% versus the medication, 73%. So this was a pragmatic trial. It found out that 
a low FODMAP style was at least as good, probably better than um, using an active medication comparison. And I think the, the authors argue, and I, I would agree that a low FODMAPs diet should be first-line therapy for patients with IBS. Um, this was a Belgian study. The app was in French and Dutch, which doesn't do us a whole lot of good <laughs> over here. Well, maybe in Holland, Michigan, it does. But there are many highly rated apps. I, I took a look in the iPhone uh, app store, and there was one called uh, a free one called Fast FODMAPs, which looked pretty good to me, and, and there are others. Gary? <laughs> yes. Um, the astute listeners will know that I covered the um, systematic review of FODMAPs diet back in October. And just remember back then, they did compare it to other diets, as Mark mentioned. It was about 50% better in terms of preventing symptoms. Um, and I just, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm, I think that was the first time I actually dug into the FODMAPs diet it was in October. And every time I see new data coming out, it's just, it just seems to be effective. Now remember what FODMAPs is. Mark Mark actually used the entire the entire word, but you're you're eliminating all of those foods at once, all of the high FODMAP uh, foods, and then individually then adding them back to your diet to see which one actually produces symptoms. And then obviously, you know, if you can find that one category of food, it could be dairy, it could be wheat based, beans, etc. You can eliminate that from your diet and feel better. Uh, I don't know. I got it. I love a, I love a study in which diet has been shown to be better than drugs. I mean, that's that's to me just a pow. I love it. <laughs> Great stuff, Kate. Yeah, I think what, what I like think? most about it is uh, I'm. I think, you know, we've seen some studies where FODMAPs is, is like clearly better and others where it's like not quite as good as, as in, in other studies. But uh, in general, yeah, I agree. Why It's certainly worth a shot in people who are excited to try it. I think the thing that I'm starting to come around to, because I'm a huge fan of using apps uh, for, for patients who are, who are, are interested in using them. Uh, you know, we've seen some for, uh, anxiety sort of as a replacement for CBT, cause it's so much easier to access an app than it is, you know, CBT for the, the bazillion things that we recommend CBT for. But I'm starting to think that we're going to need, uh, some way of sort of critically appraising apps because some of them really are so much better than others. Uh, and I, I feel like we're going to, we're going to need a way of sort of saying like, which ones are really, you know, medically based and which ones are like some guy's good idea. Yeah. And the people developing the app don't always have medical expertise and they may have read something or they may have read the wrong thing or somebody's blog. And so, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I don't know how we do that, but, um, you know, there, there, ideally there'd be some standards or ideally the app, as in this case, would be evaluated in a clinical trial. Can, can we be the national, can we be the national center for app assessment? I think we could. We, create uh, we that? need a better acronym than that, but yeah, we could. We could work on that. Yes. Yeah, no, I think our average age is at least forty years too high <laughs> for that. Oh, oh, that hurts. There's that some hurts. Gen Z team that's. Yeah. It's gonna maybe okay, maybe a group um, of our students. Yeah. Exactly. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. I'm interested in hearing this last one. This is a brand new study. It was just in the online only version of New England Journal of Medicine just came out and Gary's going to tell us what he learned. Yeah. So bempidoic acid is a lipid lowering agent that actually has been on the market for about the last two or three years and was originally FDA approved specifically because it could lower LDL cholesterol and on average, maybe 20 to 30% decrease in LDL cholesterol. But what was missing was, uh, did this translate into clinical outcomes? Were patients better off because of it? The 
the hook on this, and this, I th- I'm just going to be right for. I think this has the potential for being a game changer, but I'm not quite ready to to, to endorse that because this uh, medication actually works through a different um, um, intracellular mechanism than statins do. Number one, it's a prodrug. Number two, and it's activated in the liver but not in the muscle. Theoretically, then the so-called myalgias and, you know, the myositis, and I don't think myositis per se, but myalgias that occur with, um, with statins may be avoided with this medication. And so this, this, the, the hook on this particular drug is for those patients who are either unwilling or unable to take guideline-directed doses, and I'll get to talk about that in a minute, uh, uh, of statins, could this be an alternative? Meaning that could they take this and not only lower their cholesterol, get clinical benefit, but avoid the myalgias? So in this study, uh, patients uh, basically who were either unable or un- unwilling to take high-intensity statins due to unacceptable uh, adverse effects, statin-intolerant patients were the target, and there was about 1,400 of them in 32 countries, very large international study, uh, and they had two groups. They had about 70% of the patients who had previous ASCBD, think really high risk, and then other patients, about 30%, who had high-risk features who hadn't already had a, an event. Uh, half were randomized to the medication, bempedoic acid or placebo, followed for 40 months. And um, the baseline characteristics were exactly the same between the two groups. Average age, 66, 48% were female. One, you know, one, one downside to this in terms of generalizability, 91% of the patients were white. But 46% had type 2 diabetes, um, et cetera. The mean LDL cholesterol going into the study is 139. Um, now, not all patients who entered the study were not taking statins. They were just on low-dose statins. So about twenty-three, about, about a quarter of the patients were on a low-intensity statin. About 12% were on azetamide. Um, so in terms of, uh, so they had a four-point MACE outcome. Um, so major adverse cardiovascular event is the acronym for MACE. They had cardio- death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or coronary revascularization. So it was a it was a, a aggregate, um, uh, you know, uh, mace for those outcomes. So what did they find? About thirty percent in each group stopped the drug. So no difference between the two drugs. In terms of the upside, what they had found was is that the uh, LDL was dropped about twenty-two milligrams per deciliter more with pedoic acid versus uh, placebo. And when they looked at the four, they had used a four-point mace. They noted that there was about a about a one and a half percent difference between the two groups, absolute difference with the NNT of 62. They had a three-point mace that they basically used also, and the NNT was 76. When they looked at fatal or non-fatal MI, again, statistically significant NNT of 91, uh, a coronary revascularization about the same. So you had four or five outcomes in which maces were actually better with an NNT between 50 and 100 uh, in those in the pempedoic acid group. When they looked at all-cause mortality, no different, okay? So that's one of, the, uh, one, of the, one of the outcomes. When they looked at the percentage of patients with myalgias, absolutely similar in the two groups. And again, this is a very large study, almost 7,000 patients in each group. It doesn't mean that patients didn't have myalgias. It's about 6% in each group. Uh, and one of the um, downsides for statins is, is that about, you know, one in 300 people or so developed a new onset, a new onset of diabetes that ordinarily wouldn't have developed diabetes. And again, new onset of diabetes was about the same in each group. So those are all the upsides. Actually look pretty darn good. Problem is, is that some of the side effects caused me a little worry, I have to be honest with you. So gout, cholelithiasis, and an H was about 100. So either or. Uh, and this is the biggie big. And, and I, I got to tell you, I looked in this, 
supplement, the appendix, I couldn't find what they defined as a renal event, okay? They defined a renal event as something which occurred twice as often in the benpedoic acid, uh, almost twice as often as in the benpedoic acid versus the uh, placebo group with an NNH of 30, basically. So that's a pretty high NNH. Uh, elevated uric acid, elevated liver enzymes are all some, some of the downside here. Um, the other interesting point, and again, you had to dig deeply into this. Uh, you had to go into the appendix. When they look at the hazard ratios and those who were on it as for primary prevention versus secondary prevention, those who were on it for primary prevention had a much greater hazard ratio, that is decrease in the, in the, uh, the outcome, than those for secondary prevention, which I thought was extremely interesting, otherwise not explained. And when they adjusted for whether or not they were already on a statin, low dose, or uh, azetamide, again, didn't seem to be much of a difference. So this add-on therapy issue as a subgroup analysis didn't seem to be a big deal here. So long story short, I think there's some promise here. I think for statin intolerant patients, this could be an option for them in the future. Now we have some MACE outcomes. Um, not quite ready to jump on the bandwagon quite yet because of the my concern about the adverse effects. So anyways, I, I, I'm interested in this area poten potentially because we got a lot of patients, 10% or so, who develop myalgias on statins. And uh, this could, could be a, a good evidence-based alternative. Okay. What do you think? Yeah. So... I'm also not quite ready to jump on the bandwagon. I'm interested. I mean, as with all of these sort of alternate to statin uh, medications, um, I, I'm I'm gonna make fun of Gary a little bit because you know there's some evidence <laughs> <Easy> that <to> <laughs> do. the people who are most likely to develop myalgias uh, from their statin are the people who use their muscles the most. So the the fitter you are, the more likely you are to to develop myalgias. I have very little sympathy for the fit. Very, very little for, for people who are regularly physically active. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think my question goes back to, you know, they sort of start with the premise that that there are 10% of people um, who who get myalgias from, from statins. And, and really, I think my question is, is it better to sort of work with those patients and sort of see, are there different statins that you can tolerate? Are there different dosing intervals that you know, may reduce your myalgias? Are there other things that we can do to, to try and, especially for, for people where we're talking about secondary prevention, where you really do, you know, want to see, and and it, I find it very concerning that what you brought up about the sort of far reduced efficacy um, in that secondary prevention group, because if, if that holds true, um, that I'm off the bandwagon, uh, I think, as far as the, the pempidoic acid is concerned. Henry, <clears throat> enlighten us, Henry. Oh, yeah. So, Gary, I share with you uh, concerns regarding the balance of benefits and harms. I'm going to suggest that maybe their reporting of benefits is maybe not all that it's cracked up to be. All right. So, first of all, um, let me just say how much I hate composite outcomes. Okay. And, this, and the, 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 the MACE if you will, you, you hit on, there's, there's the four point mace, there's the three point mace, but even among studies that use a four point mace, the four elements vary across studies because there are many different potential components. So, the, so there's, there's, there are issues with, with that, that regard. Um, thinking about their data, um, all cause mortality was the same between groups. 
cardiovascular mortality was the same across the groups. Okay, So what that means to me then is that its primary effect are on the non-fatal MIs. Okay, and so, um, so all of the other stuff is kind of wastebasket stuff. Okay, not that they're unimportant, but it it really isn't that it addresses all of these things. It only addresses the non-fatal MIs, if I'm looking at these data correctly. Um, second thing is that they did lots of analyses and made no adjustments for all of the analyses that they did, which increases, now, nerd alert, uh, increases the likelihood of a type 1 error, okay? And I did a little bit of additional nerdiness and looked at, um, uh, so just taking the, their data from um, their table two, where they just, just using the four-point mace, the 95% confidence interval goes from 0.79 to 0.96. And that was, and if they actually did an appropriate adjustment, say using a 99% confidence interval, it is quite possible that that becomes not statistically significant. Okay. More nerd alert. Uh, My this apologies is... to listeners for the <laughs> Henry loves this stuff, man. He, of this, yeah, man. this podcast, and I promise you, they will not all be like this. I promise you. Okay, just hang in there, Henry. They they set the study up it, the, to detect a quote a fifteen percent relative reduction in events. Well, the event rate was tiny to begin with. And so this was set up to detect a one and a half percent difference in events. And so for us taking care of single patients or, you know, groups of patients, we may never see a patient who derives a benefit. And then counseling the person that says that, oh, by the way, based on the, uh, these data, on average, 98.5% of you will derive no benefit over placebo. That, uh, and, oh, by the way, you know, the same proportion of people are likely to have gout or something else as a result of this. That's going to be a tough p- uh, pill to sell. Um, and then the last thing with regards to the um, analyses on the cardiovascular death side, buried in their appendix is this figure that you see this really tight set of curves, but at about four and a half years, they start to separate and not in a good way. And so I wonder if this actually will have some longer term harms that uh, derive from the from the use. So I'm not ready to jump on this bandwagon at all. Well, I don't think it's a bandwagon thing, but I, I'm, I, I'm a little bit less pessimistic than, than Henry, at least. And I think that there is potential for those patients, the selected group of patients who really don't tolerate a statin. I am concerned about the 30% dropout. Um, you know, in both groups and the fact that it was mostly a secondary prevention trial, whereas most of the folks we give statins to are primary prevention. I find it bizarre that there was a reduction in, a bigger reduction in primary prevention than secondary. That's just never been seen in other prevention studies that I'm aware of, whether it's aspirin or statins. And, and that's so probably statins, just chance finding, frankly. It, it could, could be, yeah, well, the, yeah. The confidence intervals are probably pretty broad around that. So, um, you know, I think... You know, it's it's always nice to have an alternative, but I would not be super excited about prescribing this. I think if you really push to the wall and you got a patient where you really think they need to get their LDL down and you know, they just absolutely don't tolerate a statin, maybe, maybe, maybe we can use this. 
All right. Apologies for all the um, the course in biostatistics from Dr. <laughs> Barry and Dr. Roland. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not that me. smart. I'm telling you, I'm just so glad I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we had a quiz. So which of the following is true about antibiotic therapy? First option, oral antibiotics are as good as IV for bone and joint infections. And there was a 2019 randomized trial, New England Journal. They randomized folks to six weeks of IV versus six weeks of oral therapy for a bone or joint infection. And basically no difference in groups. Treatment failure was 13 to 14% in both groups. Uh, more catheter infections in the IV group, not surprisingly. So this one's true. They are as good. Next one, B, IV antibiotics are better than oral for endocarditis. This is what, you know, very smart people taught me a few years ago in medical school. Well, 2019 RCT, same issue of that, uh, that uh, trial I just mentioned, found that after a week of IV antibiotics and getting the sensitivities, you could safely switch people to oral antibiotics and have the same outcome. So that one is, I'd say, false-ish because you got to start IV, but then after a week, you can switch to oral. And third, patients with community-acquired pneumonia should be treated for seven to 10 days. The most recent guidelines, um, both British and US and, and everywhere basically, say that at least five days of therapy is needed for community-acquired pneumonia. But at that point, if the patient's vitals are doing well, their symptoms have improved, you can stop the antibiotics. So that one I would say is false as well. So bottom line, five days of antibiotics is fine for a lot of patients with community-acquired pneumonia. And oral is as good as IV for infections that were once only treated with IV antibiotics. So good stuff. Um, Henry, we got the information on Ramadan. Thanks to everyone for listening today. Uh, again, ifp.com for online IFP education webpage. And we hope you enjoyed today's discussion. I did other than the biostatistics. Please tell your friends. We'll talk to you soon with more <laughs> primary care updates. <laughs>